Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. And you know what I'm going to say. We've got a lot to cram in in our time together. This is how we're going to structure it, if it's okay with all of you. A couple of notices from me, and then, in a way, a sequel to the podcast last week in terms of my reflections and indeed quite a lot of your questions and points uh, when we come to question time in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week or missed it, what the heck were you doing? Listen back. It was delving deeper in terms of the post office scandal. None of this, you know, easy hit on Ed Davey or some other poor sod who was post office minister for about 10 seconds. They were part of a culture which was arm's length government, the state can't do anything, operational independence, two words which sound clear but actually raise about 10,000 questions in terms of accountability and responsibility. Um, Anyway, I've had so many responses about how this applies in other areas. There's going to be a bit of a sequel after our cooperative notices. And then over to you, I say mainly on this theme, because there were so many different uh, points raised brilliantly, as ever, by all of you. So, in terms of the uh, notices, uh, just very quickly, actually, as part of the rubbish state that we are in, I don't mean us in the podcast, I mean the country. Our local libraries, where I live, down in North London, are in real trouble. Big, big cuts uh, because councils are having to cut big time. Anyway, I'm doing a, a talk on my book, Turning Points, at Hornsey Library. Sunday week. Now, I know this is of not of great use for those of you who kind of live in Australia and listen, uh, but I thought I'd mention it because, you know, it's, it's, it's for a good cause. We've got we to gotta keep these few institutions that encourage some kind of communal activity, leaving a house, going somewhere, you know, getting books. Uh, we've got to save these things. So um, I'll be talking about turning points. Uh, there on uh, Sunday week, about five o'clock, I think it is. And I'll try and get a link to where you can get the tickets and put it on the podcast website, but I'm sure you'll be able to find them. Those of you who live within a kind of 200-mile radius. Um, And the only other thing I'd like to say is please uh, subscribe. If you don't subscribe, you won't get the podcast automatically. It would be great if you could leave a review. Uh, Only if you love it, though, please. Thank you. Five stars, that kind of thing. Um, Some people say, how do we leave a review? Very kindly ask me. And the truth is, I'm told it's very easy, but I've never done it. I, I think you get arrested and get six months suspended sentence if you put praise in for your own podcast. Five stars. Must listen. It's the only podcast that delves deep and engages with its whole audience. You know, I, I could write it, and it's also fun. So, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. But I haven't done it. But anyway, that would be great. And if you could tell a friend or family member, do one thing this week, subscribe to the podcast, Rock and Roll Politics, and join in as we delve deep in this election year. That would be great. And on that front, thank you so much to those of you who subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. Big announcement. 
a whole new series, which I think is going to be very interesting, coming up if you subscribe to Patreon, and it won't break the bank, and it keeps me working with the great podmasters and, you know, all the rest of it. It's also fun and delves even deeper. So your bonus podcast for the next few months is going to be on the theme of preparing for power. And here's the context. And if you subscribe to Patreon, you'll get the first one later this week for this month. Um, When I was political editor of the New Statesman in the build-up to the 1997 election, I interviewed everybody, all the senior shadow cabinet members, anyone central to the new Labour project, for the New Statesman podcast. Blair, Brown, Mandelson, Robin Cook, David Blunkett, Mo Molan, interviewed all of them. And when the election came, you know, we wanted to do a few election specials. So uh, we put all the interviews, and a lot of them made front page news at the time. We put all the interviews in a book and called it Preparing for Power. I thought it'd be really interesting to revisit that uh, book. I've I've, I've still got uh, an, an ancient copy. And look at what the people said then as the 97 election approached and compare it to what's happening now. And the first of those will be Peter Mandelson, who I interviewed in January 1997. So the exact kind of place where we're at now, as many contemplate and assume a Labour government is coming in. So if you subscribe, that will be your bonus and we'll hear what Blair was saying and Brown and others in subsequent podcasts. We'll also do a live event as soon as possible. So thank you. Do subscribe so it won't break the bank and it helps us and hopefully you'll get even more out of our times together. Now, let's return to our theme of the year. I think it was one of our themes of last year, wasn't it? Nothing bloody works. Why? Peg to the post office. Before I begin, isn't it interesting that I, you know, I'm not a world expert on the Houthis, whether these drones will work or whether they are merely the first phase of the need to continue with military action of some sort or another. But what I find so fascinating is always in this country where nothing, and depressing actually, in a country where nothing works, you can't get a bloody train, you, you know, the school roofs, you know, that we know the list and the post office. And, but whenever, you know, America gets ready, Britain is there too, standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, this drone attack, You, if you look at the headlines, I know others were involved as well, but it's all US, UK military action. And, you know, one of the depressing dimensions, frankly, is the degree to which when these things begin, the end is unexplored. And so they began without a common statement, let alone a vote. There isn't clearly going to be a vote. We've had a statement from Rishi Sunak on the Monday afternoon, but it began without any of us knowing clearly whether this would be one of several, as has been threatened, these drone attacks, uh, whether they will be effective, what are the chances of it generating further instability within the wild darkness of the Middle East at the moment? Um, these questions unexplored, but Labour back it immediately 
probing very few of these deeper questions. So all of that I find disturbing in an unelected foreign secretary, Lord Cameron, last in an elected position leading Britain out of the EU. Um, it's, it, 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 there, there are disturbing elements, though I acknowledge and have read the case for doing this. Although, you know, again, it's kind of interesting that... Um, the case is kind of made without clarity about the longer-term implications. But anyway, the other thing I find fascinating, all prime ministers kind of get a buzz out of military action. Now, don't, don't worry, I'm not saying they are utterly reckless. Um, of course, they contemplate other levels. But they get a buzz out of one element of it, which is this. If they decide on military action whether it's in the Balkans, Iraq, or now with these drones, or whatever. And it's not them deciding, let's be clear, if they decide to follow the United States, who have already decided. Things happen. A prime minister decides, they consult various military leaders, and delivery follows. There is a straightforward line of accountability and responsibility. Now, in theory, the House of Commons should be involved in holding these decisions to account, as they were with Iraq, Syria, and so on. This hasn't happened this time. But Prime Ministers all love it. I remember a very senior Labour figure saying to me, Tony Blair's got a soft spot for business leaders and military leaders, you know, and and they bring them in, they discuss something. And by the way, he said too soft a spot, not critical or questioning enough. Um, but things happen. And one of the reasons why things happen is that clear line of responsibility, which brings me to our cooperatives kind of theme for 2024 so far which is the wider issue of the post office. And I say, I kind of widened it a bit last week, but I've been amazed and taken aback by the number of people who've written in with other examples from other sectors, where the lack of clear lines of accountability lead to chaotic delivery, or no delivery at all in terms of what happened with the post offices in the early years of this saga. So I want to begin, first of all, uh, before kind of outlining some of the examples you've given and then returning to some of your emails where there are even uh, more uh, thoughts on all of this. Camilla Cavendish, uh, the FT columnist, wrote a very good piece on the deeper levels of the post office scandal. Now, she's quite an interesting figure. She's a Tory. She worked uh, for Cameron's Number 10 where she was in the policy unit uh, kind of embarking on the misjudged reforms of the NHS and other public services, the sort of fracturing uh, of the service under the apparent guise of empowering the patient, but actually involved so many mediating agencies that accountability became even more blurred. Now, what's interesting is that she, Camilla Cavendish, acknowledged this in a great piece she wrote for the Sunday Times several years ago. 
she came to recognise something which is still very unfashionable amongst much of the commentariat, that those reforms, the Blair reforms that kind of built on the Thatcher reforms and the Cameron reforms that built on the Blair reforms, have led to such blurred lines of responsibility and accountability so expensive to implement because of all the mediating agencies that actually what is required is uh, a greater centralization of this institution with clear lines of responsibility. Now the other twist before I come to her column from the FT on Saturday is that this was the conclusion that a lot of cabinet ministers, Tory cabinet ministers came to during the pandemic uh, when uh, people like Matt Hancock as health secretary was being told by number 10, do this, do that, sort out this, and he would have to turn around and say, I haven't got the power to do it. And Jeremy Hunt, so he said, we need to reform the reforms. They've created a two-fractured system. And Jeremy Hunt, then chair of the Health Select Committee, reached the same conclusion. So it's really interesting. So when you hear the word reform, as you will a lot in this election year, without much detail of what form the reform will then take, this is one, I know it's one of my themes, I know it's one of the cooperative's wider themes, pose the question, what kind of reform? These public services are screaming for reform. But when uh, Tony Blair talks about reform, it tends to be building on the reforms he began when he was in power. But they led to what Camilla Cavendish discovered was a chaotic set of uh, lines and layers of responsibility and mediating agencies. So other other reforms that might be possible. So now to her uh, column on Saturday. She points out that this is kind of echoing. She must have listened to all of us last week. Uh, one of the reasons that this is her, the post office saga took so long to resolve itself, not that it's fully resolved, is that it was a state-owned entity which was also independent. It wasn't accountable to anyone and even part-funded the postmaster's representative body, effectively muzzling it. So, you know, that, that was the essence. But then she goes on to point out the UK, this, and this again was a theme from us last week and this week, the UK landscape is littered with similar hybrid bodies which are fundamentally unaccountable. Universities that pay top management like businesses but don't run like businesses, privatised water monopolies that have spent years illegally dumping sewage into our water, their executives are part of the apparatchik class, and so is the regulator Ofwat. She then goes on to cite the NHS. And further on, you know, she goes on to talk about the brilliant young people who are recruited into the civil service with high hopes of serving the country and are then trapped in meetings where no one knows much about the people they're supposed to serve. I've met health department officials who've never been inside a hospital or care home. I've met quango heads who hire management consultants rather than talk to customers. It's not surprising we're so bad at procurement, the Fujitsu contract being one example. 
So, yeah, it was a very well-argued column, and this gets to the heart of the matter. And um, since last week, I mean, I've been thinking of other areas where the same applies, and and partly uh, it includes kind of private uh, emails I've had from some of you because it's it's very sensitive. So I had an email from one uh, listener who I've got to know talking about doctors, in the NHS, uh, warning their immediate managers that various bits of equipment are old and need replacing. And sort of when they ever get a response, uh, being told that that's not a priority, well, who decides that? And who holds those who have made that decision to account? And we've got this big issue in the NHS of NHS England, supposedly operationally, that famous phrase, operational independence, But what does the Department of Health do? And what about the Health Secretary, accountable to the House of Commons? And so it goes on. I've mentioned before in the pandemic, when those number 10 press conferences were held most days of the week and weekends, they never had the head of NHS England and the Health Secretary in the same press conference. The reason? They might say things which were contradictory, they might, one of them, claim responsibility when the other thought they had responsibility. It is unresolved at that top level. Obviously, England, the, the situation is different in Scotland and Wales. I know England and Wales, no, although it's NHS England, so no, it's different in Wales again, of course, and Northern Ireland. Uh, but NHS England and a health secretary, who is responsible for what? And then it carries on all the way down to doctors trying to engage... They're the ones on the front line. And as Camilla Cavendish writes, these distant figures not responding, or if they're responding, they make the wrong calls. Uh, Other examples, um, someone emailed me about academy schools and self-governing schools, and the degree to... We've already had, actually, some examples of uh, pretty dodgy accounting going on in some of these schools. Who are they accountable to? Who are those who run, say, a cluster of academy schools accountable to? And I remember when Andrew Adonis, who was utterly committed and evangelical and brilliant about in his desire to raise uh, the levels of schools and sort of despaired of local authorities, so set these things up. And I remember writing a column saying, Well, these schools, these academy schools, will be fine because Andrew Adonis will keep an eye on every single one of them. And, you know, the line of accountability will be to each academy school and Andrew Adonis as schools minister or whatever he uh, would have become in uh, the Department of Education as the minister. Um, uh, And he wrote back to me and said, thank you about being nice to me, but no, no, it'll all work fine. But I think there are gaps there about responsibility. Now, local authorities, for all their epic flaws, are accountable. Maybe they're not accountable to enough. Maybe the voting system should be changed to stop some local authorities becoming one-party fiefdoms and therefore complacent. But it's that classic thing. Uh, instead of saying, is there a way we can improve the way local authorities deliver education? We say, no, let's fracture it. Self-governing schools. And this issue of accountability and responsibility come up again. A former very senior colleague of mine at the BBC pointed out the BBC management making 
you know, endless meetings where quite often nothing is decided, then something is decided that turns out to be a terrible mistake. You try and find the person who made the decision. You know, who will be held to account for the misjudgment of scrapping their only domestic rolling news channel, News 24, and turning it into a hybrid with BBC World. So it's given basically Sky News a monopoly on domestic news reporting. If in the zeitgeist of the BBC it's decided that was a mistake, you try and find who was responsible or accountable. Now, these are complicated because government should not interfere, obviously, with editorial decisions. But this thing of value for money, um, in the end, they are accountable to government because it's a decision made by the elected government what the licence fee should be or shouldn't be. HS2, obviously, um, I think that we mentioned that last week, you know, the chaos of accountability partly arising from the fact that this arm's length HS2 company was responsible they were theoretically accountable to the transport secretary or transport ministers but here is part of the problem transport secretaries there were more of them than there are trains in the united kingdom that run reliably you know a transport secretary would last about 10 minutes in would come another Uh, the treasury was opposed to hs2 but once they had lost that argument and they've won it again now with sunak they kind of turned away And in that vacuum, I've no doubt costly, complacent spending decisions were made. No accountability. On a slightly different tack, but many people have noted the parallel with the post office, the pursuit of the self-employed, the so-called IR35 clause, where you can, are you self-employed? Or are you the equivalent of being on staff? And in that area, it became fashionable for all kinds of poor sods to be pursued with massive astronomical tax bills. Again, the same stress as these postmasters were under. Who was monitoring and holding to account those doing the pursuing? It is really interesting this it won't be an issue in the general election beyond as i say the bland banality of reform doing the heavy lifting because there isn't the money around um now that's a perfectly legitimate thing to say although of course there is money around if you are willing to take a deep breath and get it and make sure every halfpenny of it is spent well but the reforms that are required and incidentally it will save money if they're done properly, because the amount of money wasted by quangos and on-quangos, who, uh, you know, some of the most powerful people in Britain aren't known. You know, I love it when you get the kind of focus on who's going to be in the next cabinet, who will be in Labour's first cabinet, who will be the ministerial team below. Honestly, some of the people who run quangos, who aren't known at all, have more power. And it began in the 80s, this fashion. Well, then it was a kind of small state fashion. And then when Labour came in, there was a culture where no one trusts Labour to govern. You know, we lose elections out of power for 18 years. So we will give power to other agencies. Um, and it's to do with, in Britain as well, the weakness of uh, local government. And of course, it feeds on itself. The more it's cut, the less you're going to get talented people coming into it because their sole job is to cut and it's soul-destroying in the end. 
And I mean, the only hopeful thing I think uh, uh, the, the 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 creation of these mayors, you know, like the mayor of London, is accountable for transport. It's partly unfair because central government pumps in vital funds. And this one, if they don't like Sadiq Khan, can cut his budget and hope he gets the blame, etc. But with these mayors, there are clear lines of accountability. This needs to be sorted out in the NHS, as Camilla Cavendish argued after her direct experience of reform, in inverted commas, and in all these other areas too. And what you will find is money is saved, paying tons of money for mediating agencies, tons of money for, say, as Camilla pointed out, vice chancellors claiming to be part of a competitive business when they're not. Lots of money saved, which could then be invested on the front line. Um, but boy, does it t take a reforming zeal. Uh, you know, we're all reformers, everyone. No one argues for the status quo. Literally no one. Let's now go to your emails of points, uh, illuminating questions and so on. So here we go. And if you want to join in, Steve Rick. 14 at iCloud.com. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. And if you want to subscribe to Patreon, or there's another thing, a kind of Apple thing, you just click to subscribe to get these bonus podcasts, live events, and all kinds of things. The link for that will be on the blurb to the podcast. And remember, the first one of our new bonus podcast, Preparing for Power. Peter Mandelson, what was he saying in January 19? 97 as the election moved into view then as it is now now as i say a lot of your questions relate to this theme and uh, many of you with direct experience and uh, observations so if it's okay with you that's the main focus this week of questions not solely but mainly and i thought we'd set the scene with charles ward who's written in now as i mentioned last week one of the things we do on this podcast is we've got uh, listeners and emailers to us who are barometer voters. They voted for other parties, uh, the Tory party, specifically in December 2019. Where are they going to turn to now if they are disillusioned? And I mentioned uh, the last live show at King's Place when I was signing books of turning points at the end uh, one of the guys came up and said I don't know what to do I've, I'm a Tory voter I'm a liberal Tory I don't want to vote Tory but I'm not convinced by Labour I told him to keep in touch anyway I mentioned that and we've got some barometer listeners who I hope to hear from soon Denise what about your mum and so on anyway Charles Ward has written uh, hi Steve long time listener first time uh, caller caller uh, you didn't did you phone charles anyway uh, uh charles said i enjoyed how you described me to your political barometer at a book signing and decided to share an observation of my own my father is a retired colonel and former elected conservative councillor that's interesting charles we all dad will i hope he listens because he'll know about how the lines of accountability work in that military sphere and in, and in marked contrast to every other form of public service delivery in the UK. Anyway, 
his, Charles says his dad says he's fed up with politics and that he's going to stay home on voting day. Mm, that is depressing, Charles. My brother is a career army officer, Oxford graduate, and about as establishment as you can get. He was thoroughly disgusted by Boris Johnson, Truss et al., and thinks that Sunak is well out of his depth. He is now an unwilling Lib Dem voter. Mm, that's interesting. I think there will be quite a lot of uh, people like your brother. This is really interesting. My mother used to be a member of the Conservative Party, mainly out of familial loyalty, I think, but lapsed her membership in 2019 and voted Green. I think she will do so again. She's been furious about the pollution and rowing back on net zero pledges from Sunak. Note that all voted for Brexit but think it's been a complete disaster and only my father still thinks it might work under different management. That's really interesting. You see, I think a lot of Keir Starmer's office are so cautious about Brexit, but here are a lot of people who voted for it that you're mentioning who recognise it to be a disaster. I hope Lord Frosty Frost is listening to this podcast. I appreciate, Charles Gordon said, this is an extremely small demographic sample, but these folks were pretty committed Tories up until about halfway through Johnson's premiership. They were active in their local parties and in some cases held elected positions. I have a feeling that the pundits have yet to realise what deep demoralisation has affected the traditional Conservative base. I'm confident they could be brought back by someone vaguely inoffensive like Tugendhat or Rory Stewart. I wonder what's happened to Rory Stewart. But I think that if, as seems depressingly likely, Suella Braverman or someone similarly caustic becomes the next leader, these people will be lost from the fold. Anyway, many thanks for the excellent work. Oh, thank you. I really enjoy your podcast and hope to catch one of your live shows this year. Well, it'd be great, Charles, if you come along and, and uh, yeah, have a drink afterwards is that so that's this is what's brilliant about this podcast you people spend a fortune on polls and things and here we get a snapshot of one tory family and the scale of disillusionment um i note that none of them have swung all the way to labor i think we'll have to hear from our other barometer figures as to whether they have got close i think some have but the disillusionment with the tories is deep and they're not going to vote for them it's really interesting uh, and i think you've pinpointed when it began to happen mid boris johnson when the scale of disillusionment took hold and what has followed has not addressed that disillusionment and the scale is fascinating. Someone told me they met a senior Tory, very senior, who said they could be almost wiped out at this election. You know, now, I, I can't, this is not a prediction for me. I, who knows? Um, but they said that is not an impossibility. And it's really interesting also that you're getting people like Lord Frosty Frost writing that precisely, that Tories face a wipeout. Um, and, and basically proposing Liz Truss economics as a way of solving the situation. Uh, I, and you can see in that the condition that the Tories are in, that you have Frost with a newspaper column in the Telegraph, one of the causes of the fall of the Tories with his 
disastrous Brexit deal, which the Brexiteers in uh, Charles's family are, are now completely disillusioned about. Getting prominence for advising Sunak about what to do and his advice is to turn to kind of trust-like economics, tax cuts and all the rest of it. Anyway, thank you very much. Now, we continue with this theme in various different forms. So Tony Ellis writes, and I noticed in the post-match commentary after Sunak's PM Connect, he did a live event, I think in the northwest somewhere, uh, there was scepticism about his attack line that voting Labour would take Britain back to square one. The thinking being that when many voters think the Tories are the ones who've broken Britain, going back to square one could sound like a great idea. He goes on to say, Tony, a broken Britain is a theme you've championed on the podcast, and I've noticed it's getting a lot more traction recently. It was the same with your observation early on in Sunak's premiership that he's no good at politics. Now everyone knows it. Where the rock and rollers go, the rest follow. Thank you, Tony, in the Wirral. Um, yeah, we are all prophets. And, and that's what happens if you delve deep, you see ahead. And if you explore and contextualise by referring to the past, it does shed some light on the future. Now, so we're on this kind of Broken Britain theme and others of you uh, have written in about the lessons from the post office thing. Graham Golding is interesting because I didn't know about this. Listening to your piece on the ill-conceived model of ownership and management represented by the post office reminds me that the Horizon project also met another bit of ill-conceived industrial policy. ICL, who originally developed the Horizon system, was the result of merging all the UK-owned computer interests of various companies to create a national champion. By 1981, ICL didn't have the technology or the cash to continue as a hardware manufacturer, so a relationship started with Fujitsu. Uh, in a desperate attempt to keep it going yeah well there we go you know no technology no cash uh familiar themes in terms of um when britain tries to coordinate service delivery it's interesting i had no idea that was the background to the kind of high-tech computer dimension to all of this uh thank you graham uh, Andrew Kitching uh, is, is keeping a very close eye on local government for us on behalf of the cooperative and points out that um, when 80% of their income comes from central government and councils are being cut, there are going to be many more bankruptcies to come. Uh, yeah, as I say, I'm in Hornsey Library doing my bit, but I don't pretend giving a talk in Hornsey Library is going to turn the whole situation round. David Perkins has written a huge list, way belong Camilla Cavendish and me, about some of the implications of not working in Britain. The blood scandal, the Windrush scandal, the MP's expensive scandal, post office scandal, the banker's scandal, the Grenfell scandal, the Hillsborough scandal. He goes on, he lists 23 of them. And he pinpoints, uh, to some extent, the origins of a lot of them. Not all, I don't think, David, to be honest, but uh, the, the culture of the 80s, and it is true. It's really interesting. If you look at, for example, Hillsborough, 
and the assumption that they could get away, that the police could get away with it, the sort of cover-up, um, is again about they could sense that the lines of accountability were not well-developed enough and um, to, to shine a light on what really happened. And it's another reminder, of course, the media can have the power to hold uh, agencies, whether it's the police or politicians, to account. But when you have the sun kind of absolutely backing the narrative that emerged first at something like Hillsborough, it's not going to happen. So the 80s culture still largely prevails, um, give power to agencies, operational independence. But it's really interesting. Ministers discover when anything goes wrong, they remain responsible. I remember John Prescott, who wanted to do more about the railways when they came in in '97. He was transport was one of his responsibilities, um, but you know number ten weren't up for it at all. And he said to me in an interview, I think, uh, or privately, well, at least I won't be held responsible when something goes wrong with the trains. He found he was. He was on at ten past eight when there was a crash or something. And so we have found now with the post office saga um, that retrospectively poor old Davy and others are being held to account. But they didn't feel that accountability when it was actually going on. Okay, uh, Stephen Lamb says, how about reviving Britain as Labour's slogan? Returning to this theme of our podcast today. And actually, uh, seems very interesting. He says, regarding your interest in uh, bellwether voters, I started with the Conservatives in 1979, voted Labour in 1997, might have done in 92, but for the Labour candidate in his Bristol seat being too left-wing for Stephen. Then Lib Dem up to 2017. I voted Green in 2019. I also found the choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson too hideous to make. I've enough confidence in Labour under Starmer to vote for them later this year. My disillusionment with the Tories is well nigh uh, comprehensive. I'm probably one of your veteran listen listeners in both senses. So did you first vote in 79? Hmm. I suppose that makes you a veteran. And continue to value rock and roll politics highly, never more than an election year. Thank you, Stephen. Very interesting. So here is someone who voted Tory uh, in the past and then has been on quite a few, uh, with quite a few different parties. He's going to vote Labour next time. Anyway, thank you. Very so we're getting, yeah, this is, I say, you don't need to get... Forget about paying a fortune on these focus groups. We are a focus group. Um, David Urquhart has written in saying, I heard your podcast last year and have been an avid listener since. Oh, great. Having tried a number of political podcasts over the last few years, it's quickly become my favourite. I particularly like the historical sweep and the big picture analysis which you bring to events. I also like the fact that you use the word cooperative, which seemed to have fallen out of fashion, sadly. Yet we are a kind of John Lewis that is doing well, David. Um, anyway, thank you very much for all of that. Um, Anyhow, the reason that I write, I was driving home listening to the most recent podcast when people were talking about possible slogans, and I was reminded of a section of the memoir by David Hare, the Blue Touch paper, which I've just finished. Talking of the 79 election when Thatcher came into power, he says, Maurice Saatchi, the PR architect of her victory, went on to claim that time for a change was the most powerful slogan in politics, but I never thought it as potent as, we can't go on 
as we are. How apt that seems now. It will certainly be going in my window whenever the election is. Uh, yeah, that is a good one, actually. David Hare, who goes on to say, it's true that the country had staggered for the last decade, reeling around, shedding identity, raggedly trying to work out its uncertain future. But my God, staggering was a great deal preferable to what lay ahead. Um, yeah, they, these slogans, it's very interesting. Christian Walmart started this live at King's Place when he asked a question about what the slogan Labour should adopt in, uh, for the forthcoming election. And there've been lots of very interesting ones, actually. It's a bloody hard task the slogan to avoid banality and yet not offend anyone is not easy and now we've been we've been together for a long time so i'm going to very quickly summarize some of the others uh, dr bender grovener says i was glad to hear you address the problems with public services run at arm's length particularly in regard to the post office i think it's a shame that a loss of confidence in our politicians even the politicians losing confidence in themselves it, that's part of it absolutely has seen the removal of political involvement as the way to improve public services when as you rightly point out the thing that ultimately makes public services work is accountability this is the key thing of course politicians aren't experts on how you run the post office or how you deliver effective health care in a particular area and so on but they are ultimately responsible because they fund for example the nhs and the level of funding is clearly part of it they are also res uh, responsibility for structure now they can then, of course, devolve responsibilities downwards. But there has to be absolute clarity about who is responsible to whom and a transparency so that every patient, every voter can access decisions being made and if they want an explanation, get it. And there are ways of doing it. And, you know, some, some of these kind of health specialists like the King's Fund are brilliant on, on some of these structural issues. So anyway, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, his slogan uh, for Labour, let's start again. It's a bit like back to square one being a positive thing. But yeah, uh, thank you very much. Very, very interesting. It is, it is partly about self-confidence. Because Labour, certainly after the 80s, thought, oh, bloody hell, the Labour Party couldn't deliver a bloody hot bath. And so assurance to voters, the markets, the media, still powerful, was all about getting others involved and other agencies. In a way, the Bank of England is the most vivid example. The independence of the Bank of England on sort of day two of that Labour government uh, it was all about reassuring the markets. Uh, it was a brilliant move, actually, because it was structured very cleverly. Did give independence in setting interest rates, but actually Gordon Brown and Ed Balls could still have quite a lot of influence. They set the terms of reference, of course. They selected the Monetary Policy Committee and the governor. It, it was very, anyway, it was a very interesting example of uh, knowing that a Labour government wasn't trusted and therefore giving power elsewhere. But it, it, at some point, this has got completely out of hand and it began in the 80s. Um, Robert from Harrogate says, 
Uh, I recently read that the French were amazed that the British were not on the streets with all that's been happening politics here since the referendum. That begs the question, why not? I have a theory we don't talk about it together enough. There's no shared consciousness of within the community we harbor our anger and frustration we keep it to ourselves i'm furious about brexit i also know that johnson was a wrong one. uh but every time i've tried to discuss this at parties or gatherings there hasn't been that much interest of course this is why your podcast is such a good fu- good fun yes well i think it's good we're having a laugh aren't we as we reflect on the calamity of the united kingdom at the moment Uh, But why do we have this as a national trait? This silent habit is doing us great damage. Uh, Yeah, no, I kind of agree, really. Um, There should be much more. That's why I do the live shows, although it's not for people to riot, but to delve deep. Um, and, And Twitter and all these kind of things create the impression of community but it's not people are sitting anonymously in their houses kind of doing this tweeting but there's enough has gone wrong we've reflected on a lot of it today uh for people to be a lot less passive than they are um okay thank you very much uh Jamie Taylor gives a different course. He said, you recently implied that being left-handed might account for your poorly received handwriting. I repeat my apology for those of you who received the uh, uh, sticker for uh, within the Turning Points book uh, for Christmas. Uh, I'm told my handwriting is appalling. Uh, I'm an engineer, and uh, says Jamie Taylor, and a surprising number of my most creative and original colleagues are left-handed. Yeah, to the extent that I've th- often thought of left-handedness as a gift, divinely handed out to lucky people. Well, that's a great way of looking at it, Jamie. Uh, Jamie, by the way, is, uh, he wonders, by the way, are left-handed politicians a thing? Should we be told about them? Yeah, I wonder, there aren't many great politicians around in the UK at the moment, but I wonder if they're left-handed. Jamie is the convener of the Saudo Bicycle and Arthur's Seat um, subgroup of the Edinburgh Rock and Roll Politics Collective. So, Jamie, when I'm up at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, will you take me on a bike ride to Arthur's Seat? Uh, we'll walk up Arthur's seat and then have some sourdough bread. Is that a deal? I'm going to uh, rush through some of the others. Dominique Jewell, our French correspondent, uh, writes that uh, the British media have distorted what is happening in France via the US-UK strikes in Yemen. Uh, where are the French, the British media are asking? She says that on December the 8th, 2023, the French government deployed a frigate in the Gulf, and it has since then been intercepting and destroying drones. And she wonders why the British media go for France. Uh, Steve Petrie has uh, written in with a reference to, he's been reading, as I hope you all have, uh, my book Turning Points, and he says, oh, he's really enjoying it. I wouldn't have read the question out if Steve hadn't written that. Um, uh, He wonders, there's a running theme, particularly in relation to Suez and Brexit and so on, about British exceptionalism. So when turning points arise, Britain quite often doesn't turn. Uh, And Steve writes, British exceptionalism has clearly failed to provide robust responses to the political, economic and environmental buffetings of the 21st century. But does that mean it is in retreat as a political force? If it is, can we find other ways of being comfortable in our national skin? There's a whole 
podcast in that, Steve, uh, but it's a good question. What other ways, other than the feeling irrationally superior, uh, would help us uh, navigate the waves? Um, Matthew Ryder, as we embark on this general election year, I wonder if you could find time on the podcast to reflect on television debates involving party leaders, what role they play and what will happen in that respect uh, in the coming election. Very interesting question uh matthew said i continue to enjoy the podcast uh it brings me solace i hope you're getting solace today with all our uh insights into what the hell's going wrong and why uh, but he gets solace and clarity matthew says as i walk the cambridgeshire countryside near huntingdon well if you're not getting solace today as you walk matthew i hope the countryside is compensating um uh yeah matthew's got another he's got, got good ideas that would definitely be a theme uh tv debates uh spoiler alert i'm really not a fan of them i think they're a complete disaster area for reasons i'll explain at some point uh, he has another good idea as well you must be aware that january 2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the first labor government this must have been a landmark moment even though the government only lasted less than a year i'd be interested to hear what lessons you think keir starman and his leadership team could draw from 1924 and 1929 to 31 yeah there are some actually uh, it's a very good idea uh, and paul cooper wonders have politicians always campaigned by using personal attacks on opponents and is this current trend to ignore facts or supporting evidence a new twist or a well-established tradition well paul i can tell you uh, that it's a well-established tradition i think this one is going to be pretty vile in some respects this election campaign but they all have i mean you know labor leaders have been slaughtered before campaigns have begun Michael Foote, Neil Kinnock, and so on. Ed Miliband, to some extent. Um, it's not the sole reason why Labour lose elections with their eyes closed, uh, but it's one. It can happen to Tory leaders. John Major was unfairly treated in some respects. Uh, this one's going to be vicious. It's, it's already reached the mad point. where one of Keir Starmer's great strengths, actually, in terms of his character, was what he did as a lawyer. You know, he could have opted to make a fortune, but he did a lot of um, cases for free, uh, good causes, you know, and saving people from the death penalty and representing people threatened with that, that and other things. Um, but because the Tories have framed a thing where he's this lefty lawyer from Islington, he doesn't actually live in Islington, Boris Johnson did, he doesn't really mention it that much. Uh, and, and anyway, there's a lot. I mean, you know, Labour have hit below the belt as well with that Sunak supports rapists, was it? You know, do you remember that? So it's going to be vicious, but honestly, they're all pretty vicious and you have to be tough and take a deep breath uh, if you're a leading politician entering a British election. And it's harder for a Labour leader because the newspapers with the exception of 1997 and some 2001 and 2005, tend to go for a Labour leader. By the end, they went for Blair, but after the elections, more. Um, in fact, Blair's last speech was a speech about the, the, the appalling nature of the media in Britain. The feral beast, did he call it? Anyway, um, it's going to be tough, Paul. Uh, take a deep breath and get ready for it, because we are in election year, and we've got a lot more to make sense of. We focused kind of on this theme because it's so deep and it is so fundamental, and it provides a route to the way Labour government can address this issue of public service delivery and efficiency 
efficiency is really important and uh, it won't be a big election fit theme it will just be called reform and then everyone oh the times are reform although the times editorial will be they're not offering enough reform i suspect um i read the times editorials it could be on politics and be written by a 10 year old it's, it's, anyway uh, that's another one look thank you so much for tuning in brilliant points question do join in our never-ending discussion and yeah let's get together again very soon and if you sign up to patreon preparing for power peter mandelson's interview in january 1997 compared with now okay uh, very easy to subscribe the link will be with the blurb to the podcast thanks so much take care keep going on all fronts have fun as well and see you all very soon bye